Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We ask where Lewis Hamilton ranks among the greats of Grand Prix racing and look at the achievements that could yet be to come. With the dust having settled on Lewis Hamilton's fourth World Championship, one in Mexico about a week ago, there's been a lot of talk about where he ranks among the greats. So we thought it'd be a good chance to, and everyone's calmed down a bit, and we've got a little bit more perspective, to look at his season, to look at where he stands among the other greats of the current era and the greats of the past, just to ask how good is Lewis Hamilton? Where is he now in the, the pantheon of the, of the superstars of, of Grand Prix racing? My name is Ed Stroy, your host, and joining me to help delve into the statistics, the performances, the history of, of Lewis Hamilton and the other great drivers. I've got two very well-appointed guests. First up, we've got Autosport magazine editor Kevin Turner, who has been sending himself mad with creation of spreadsheets for data, some of which he will unleash later in this podcast. Is it actually usable information? Can oh, well, we'll, find, we'll find out, won't we? It's usable when I can sit there and ponder it for a while and and write something from it, but we'll, we'll, it remains to be seen whether we can use it on the hoof 
uh, in a podcast, but I'll, I'll do my best. Well, we also have Adam Cooper, who doesn't have a spreadsheet, but he has got a notebook. Adam is in his 33rd year with Autosport. He's been going forever, so he's seen uh, he's seen plenty of the greats in his time. Obviously, he's been covering F1 for Lewis Hamilton's whole career and covered a huge number of, of the drivers who we're going to talk about. So, Adam, 33rd season with Autosport. That's quite long, isn't it? Yeah, it's gone very quickly, hasn't it? Luckily, I started very young. Um, but yeah, 33 years, pretty scary number, isn't it? <laughs> Almost as scary as your overall age, probably, I'd have thought. Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't talk about that. We won't dive into that one too much, but I imagine people can, uh, can work out. You, you didn't start when you were 10, did you? I actually started reading the magazine when I was 10, so I did have a sort of 10-year lead up to working for Autosport, reading it every week for 10 years. So that was uh, quite an interesting number too. Can you remember the first issue? Absolutely, yeah. The 1976 Brazilian Grand Prix report. So January 30th, I think it was, 1976. Excellent. <laughs> With a rally car on the cover. Can you remember your first issue, Kev? Not really, because I had my uh, dad's old archive. So I sort of worked backwards in time. So 1970 would have been one of the first <laughs> magazines I'd have read, which is quite a bit before uh, contemporary reports for me. I think the first one I can remember buying myself was the 94 Brazilian Grand Prix report issue. I'd read issues before that, but that was the, I think that was the first of the continuous run of me buying it until, of course, I started working here and was, was getting the issues for issues for free. You'd have been at the 94 Brazilian Grand Prix, wouldn't you? Or was that just before um, you started full-time? No, and I, I would have been that... Um, I covered Champ Car that year until, ah, course, until yeah. I went to Canada in the middle of the year because I was in America and uh, Japan and Australia at the end of the year. And since that Japanese race, I've been to all of them, haven't miss one but yeah going back to that issue in 76 i did buy that myself you know, my dad had no interest in motor racing or whatever but my sort of interest built up and i was 10 years old and discovered it in the local news agents one uh, january morning so that's where it all started there you go and led you directly to this point exactly yeah so let's get on to the matter at hand lewis hamilton adam what do you reckon is this his best world championship victory um it's a difficult one isn't it because 2008 was quite a spectacular championship and obviously won on the last lap um, but I think the fact that Lewis says that this is his best and, and toughest uh, hardest earned championship I think that's a pretty good indication um, and I think he he would probably he probably wouldn't say it but in terms of the opposition he would see Vettel as a much stronger rival than Massa was in 2008 and he said the other day that um, Vettel was the best I think he used the word best appointed driver on the grid in terms of having four championships and now now he was no longer that because there were two of them so I think beating Vettel meant a lot to him and that that's probably the key to it yeah I, I would agree with that I'd also say I think in 2008 of course there were a few blunders along the way weren't there most obviously at Canada when he tanked into the back of Raikkonen in the pit lane whereas this year I'm struggling to think of any significant errors that uh, Lewis has made um, and obviously these other two titles were really in a, in a sort of straight fight against Nico Rosberg who I think we'd all expect him to beat across the season obviously he didn't last year but you'd expect that this year Vettel uh, another, yeah, he's obviously enjoyed the battle more and I think there have been a couple of weekends where he's probably finished higher up than the car should have done I think he controlled the Belgian Grand Prix very well on a car that in a car on race pace wasn't the dominant car that everyone expected pre-weekend I think Ferrari could have won that race and uh, but Lewis won it so yeah, I think I think I'd say 2017 has been uh, certainly Lewis's best championship-winning campaign. And there've been a few races as well where he's been absolutely central to the win, hasn't it? Spain, he passed Vettel on track. That was very much uh, a Hamilton turning the tables victory. Spa, he had to hold off a 
very good drive there. Austin, he didn't have track position at the start and had to pass Vettel. Admittedly, he did it quite early on and there was a good advantage, but he certainly been the the full package in terms of even when things have been a little bit against him or the situation hasn't been on his side he's been able to to turn it around and you look where Bottas has been now okay Bottas first year in the car so it's perhaps not a it's not it's not the same benchmark that he's had with with Rosberg um but there have been weekends where you know Bottas hasn't really got got close to the front and you know Lewis has been up there first and seconds and things it's a shame that we had the Singapore start shunt because obviously with a damp race that would have I think Lewis would have been more competitive in those conditions than the car clearly had in the dry and that could have given him a chance to really have another another wet weather special uh, as it was he didn't really need it but um yeah it's, it's it's difficult to see any points that he's given away this year yeah exactly I, I was going through the races this morning and if you look at it the only thing you could call a mistake was he got himself a five second penalty in Bahrain for going too slowly in the pit lane but I can't remember any mistakes in races. He he didn't mess up any qualifying sessions. I don't think there were any bad starts like we had last year. And the other thing, of course, he's, he's, he's had reliability. And um, obviously a lot of that's down to Mercedes. But he made a very interesting comment the other day along the lines of, um, you don't realise how hard I've worked on reliability. Meaning we we don't know how often he's been driving with the engine turned down, all that kind of thing. Um, just trying to save it for the next race and so on. So it's it's quite possible that he's he's played a role. And I think that one gearbox penalty in um, Austria, um, that's been the only, and the headrest in Baku, the only two times that there's been a sort of team team error of some kind that's, that's cost him. It feels to me like Hamilton has really bought into the need to be the complete driver on and off track. His supreme pace has always been there. He's, he's been a great driver throughout his whole career. But it almost feels like that desire to leave no stones unturned has really sunk into him so he's just doing absolutely everything he can possibly do to make sure he gets the best out of a weekend he's not just going to rely on being supremely fast he's going to do all the work off tracks so i think there was often this characterization of him as a not particularly intelligent driver i think he's a i think he's an intelligent guy hamilton far more so than people give him credit for but i think he's bought into the need to bring that intelligence to his game more and more over the years i don't think it's like an on-off switch suddenly this year he's doing that it's been a gradual process but I think that's behind this relentlessness in the second half of the season in a, in a difficult car. Yeah, and he, I saw a very interesting comment the other day from him along the lines of um, when he was talking about negotiations with Toto a couple of years ago. He said, one day you're going to need me, meaning it seemed very easy when it was Hamilton versus Rosberg and the car was dominant and they knew one of them was going to win. But eventually Ferrari or Red Bull were going to catch up and then they were going to need that Hamilton star quality to actually win the championship. And I think we've seen that this year. He said very much in Mexico that he felt that he'd led the team. And obviously, with Prosberg gone, Bottas coming in, the whole dynamic changed. And you can see you can see from the outside that he'd sort of grasped that opportunity. And he's now actually talking about that and, and confirming that, yeah, I was leading the team and I really enjoyed that and I had input into the car and so on. He's in the sweet spot, isn't he? He's still got the, the pace that he had early in his career. As you say, Ed, he's added, uh, he's added all that experience and learning to it. And he's got the freedom of, of not having this. He obviously doesn't like politics within a team. He's not a political operator. And I think he felt felt that the situation with Eco was a bit too political. Bottas doesn't appear to be political at all. So Lewis can now enjoy driving the car. The cars, I think, suit him better this year as well. I think he likes a big, meaty, high downforce, fast car. I think everything's everything's aligned. And he's, I think we're probably seeing him at his peak right now. Well, he's 32, isn't he? So there's still a lot of time. That's kind of the period where you'd expect a driver to be getting to their absolute best. And he could have quite a few years at, at this absolute best 
people tend to think that once you get into the second half of the 30s there's a decline but actually I think the real thing is how determined the driver is that seems to be the most important thing and I think I don't see any sign of Hamilton's hunger being sated by being a four-time world champion it feels to me like he wants to he's ready to get up and go again in a way that maybe Nico Rosberg after his first title wasn't ready to go through that again well his comments about Max Verstappen recently kind of back that up don't they you know he clearly sees him as the next guy I mean we all we all see that it's 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 obvious um he's was saying I've got to you know gonna have to raise my game again to you know to see him off um and ultimately, age will be against him in that battle. But if it gives him a motivation for another two or three years to deliver his best as Verstappen, if Verstappen gets into a front-running car, a front-running car all the time, obviously the Red Bull's been getting better the second half of the year, then um, we could be in for some you know, fantastic battles or the outgoing great with the, the, the upcoming one. Well, it's a great crop of drivers. I guess the first point, if you want to ask about how great Hamilton is, is look at him amongst his, his peer group. And it's a really, really strong period. I'm not just thinking this year, but looking over the past eight, nine, ten years while Hamilton's been in Formula One, we've had obviously the comeback of, of Schumacher, or Schumacher version two, which is a slightly different one to the previous one. But we've had Alonso, Kubica, now Verstappen's coming along, Dan Ricciardo, Vettel, so many good drivers. How how do you evaluate it? Adam, this is a strong, particularly strong era, isn't it? Yeah, it's very much like tennis, isn't it? Where you've got uh, Murray and Federer, and you've got four fantastic guys, and it is a very, very, very strong era. I mean, if you look back to Michael Schumacher's career, when he, for several years, it was basically only Mika Hakkinen, with due respect to Coulthard, who was obviously doing a pretty good job at the time. And then later on, you look at the era when Michael was up against Montoya and his own brother. How how strong was it at that time? And and definitely now, if you look at those four or five guys, um, yeah, it's fantastic. I guess it's always difficult, isn't it? Because you've got the variation of, of cars. But Hamilton has always stacked up well against his teammates. He's had a, a mixed bag of teammates, I guess you could say. But he's been alongside Nico Rosberg, who did win the world championship. So he's he more often than not beat a world champion. Against Jensen Button, with the exception of 2011, he overall had the better of, although... At McLaren button was very very strong and actually I think over the whole three years they were together did slightly score more points didn't they uh, overall but that was heavily biased towards 11. Hamilton's never been in a position where you felt he's been under the under the cosh against a teammate even in his first season against Fernando Alonso I guess that's one of the things isn't it that instant impact you look for from the great drivers and he has had that instant impact and I guess all these guys have Alonso did in his way in the Minardi in 2001, which was the slowest car in the field, but there were still some miraculous qualifying performances and people getting quite excited about him. So we've seen that impact and ability right from the start, haven't we? You can't really compare a guy in a McLaren winning races and challenging for a championship with someone showing well in a car at the back of the field with no pressure. And Hamilton's first year was really exceptional. And the only one you can compare it with was Villeneuve, perhaps that time the Williams was so so dominant wasn't it um so that you know he was inevitably going to win some races and in the end he he, he nearly beat Damon didn't he well and Jackie Stewart 65 at BRM I think that was obviously a race winning car um wasn't probably quite as good as the as the Lotus you've probably got your stats there haven't you Ed? um got plenty of but, stats uh, <laughs> or some of my own but yeah I think I think those but even if they're not in race winning cars as you say you can you can see who's who's standing out but I, I think it's interesting that it's the Alonso Hamilton yeah, you know, thing we're talking about from two thousand seven because for me they're the two, they're the top two of the last decade. I put them both marginally ahead of Vettel, notwithstanding the fact that obviously Fernando now has a paltry two world championships compared <laughs> to the four of the other two. Would you agree with that, Adam? Yeah, it's that's what I was saying earlier. It's, um, 
it's so hard to place Vettel, isn't it? Because if you start, we'll get onto the all-time greats later, but if you start thinking about where does Vettel rank in that, you just he's not a name that jumps to mind. The same as someone like Mika Hakkinen, you don't think that you know you don't wouldn't automatically put them in your top five or six or even top ten. But obviously Vettel does deserve to be there, and uh, the fact that Hamilton's beaten him this year. It just adds to, to the Hamilton legend, really, doesn't it? Well, that's the thing. If Vettel had won the World Championship this year, which was very possible because before Singapore, things were going pretty well for Ferrari. And if Singapore, the start crash hadn't happened, if there hadn't been the mechanical problems that followed in the next two races, the championship would still be on. Vettel maybe could have won it. And then we'd be saying, well, actually, Vettel, he's had triumphs with Red Bull and Ferrari now. So he's won with two teams, which is always a one of the prerequisites that people often cite. I don't always agree it's necessary for a driver to win with two different teams, but it it is helpful, then you'd have a, a slightly different conversation. But the interesting thing is, looking at some of the stats, I'm going to bring out. I'm going to bring out the the big notebook now, which has got all sorts of numbers and post-it notes all over it. Which uh, hopefully I'll be able to decipher. One of the things we do, and it's a it's a Gary Anderson method, is look at the uh, what we call the super times, where we look at the quickest individual lap of each car on a Grand Prix weekend, and we calculate it as a percentage of the single fastest lap that anyone sets. Now it's 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 a it's a rough rule of thumb about who's got the quickest car, and it, it's interesting to look at the various seasons of these three drivers. Just looking at Alonso, Vettel, and Hamilton, Alonso's only once been able to be in the car that's been quickest over the course of the season. That was in two thousand and seven with the McLaren. He won the championship twice with with Renault, both times the second quickest car on average. And it's amazing if you look at if you look at Alonso's career. I'm going to read out a list of numbers here. If you look at the the, the position in the speed ranking his car's been over his seasons. It goes 11, 4, 4, 2, 2, 1, 5, 7, 2, 3, 4, 3, 4, 9, 7, 6, which is uh, all over the map, really, for Alonso, which explains why he's, he's not got anywhere near as many wins as he as he could do. Hamilton, uh, by contrast, has, has had the fastest car, I think, in six seasons, including the past four with Mercedes. But he's also won races in what was on average the sixth fastest car in 2009, although obviously that car did improve as the season came on. So that gives you a little bit of a, a feel for it. Vettel's four championships, fastest car three of those years, second fastest in, in 2012. So it's interesting to see how that, that car opportunity feeds into it. Certainly you'd say Hamilton hasn't had a championship run like, say, Alonso's 2012 season, has he? I think Alonso has that more than either Hamilton or Vettel. Hamilton hasn't really had it at all, as you say. Um, although he wasn't, when he won it in 08, it was, the McLaren was fractionally slower than the Ferrari across the season. So, you know, it technically he won the championship, not the fastest car. Um, I'm this, this is where we move away slightly from the stats. My gut feeling is that we wouldn't be talking about Lewis Hamilton as a four-time world champion yet if Fernando Alonso had still been at Ferrari. Because I don't think he would have given away the points that Vettel has done this year. Most obviously at Singapore. But... That we're into theory there rather than, than straight facts but we what we can say is that Alonso has put together championship fighting campaigns with Ferrari when they were as far if not further off the pace from the front than, than the car this year um, and I think that's pretty remarkable It's also about being in the right car at the right time I mean go all the way back to Fangio and he was jumping around and he was always in the best team and you've got to give Hamilton credit for that decision to leave McLaren when 99% of people thought he was completely mad. Um, and he obviously had a good sales pitch from, from Nicky and Ross Braun, I guess. And um, he made a an, an amazing decision, as it turned out. And who would have thought that at the time? And we, we could all see that Mercedes was, was on the up. 
but remember that 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 sort of end of that sort of um, V8 era, they were getting the old pole and winning the old race. But who who would imagine that they dominate in the way they did? They have done in the last four years. Well, you're absolutely right about the the decision making because you can talk about Alonso's success in lesser cars, but he's shown an uncanny knack for. For, for moving at the wrong time or not making things stick with teams. Exactly, yeah. Sure. I mean, it's all about relationships with teams and Alonso's failed at that a couple of times and lost potential opportunities because of that. Do we think that has to mean that Alonso has to be ranked behind Hamilton? How much weighting should we put into that decision-making process and that ability to form the relationships with the teams? It's very important, isn't it? And we've talked about how good Hamilton's been this year in terms of making Mercedes his team. So the the flip side of that has to be if a driver struggles to do that, certainly on a consistent basis, then we surely have to consider that a negative, don't we? Yeah, and also you, we can talk about Alonso and and and, and um, the sort of things he could have won, but he, at the end of the day, he hasn't, and Lewis has, um, and you, you've got to give give Lewis credit for that, haven't you? And you know the numbers don't lie, do they? You know, at the end of the day, all those wins, poles, and championships, you know, he's gone out there and, and done it. Kevin Turner looking sceptical. Oh, I am looking sceptical. <laughs> I think um, your your point there, Ed, is kind of it's almost. Comp- There's two different things going on there. I think the choice of going to which team is slightly different to the relationships you then build with them. So. You could say Fernando, and there's so many factors that go into that. You know, Lewis looks like a genius for his for his move to Mercedes. Absolutely right that he, you know, it was a, it was a good call. But there are so many factors that play into these decisions. For example, McLaren, he was fed up with McLaren having reliability problems. He'd had the quickest car in 2012 on balance, and they'd had too many, you know, too many issues. Uh, where else was he going to go? Mercedes was an opportunity. So. It, it's not just the drive. It's not just the driver sitting there picking that. Unless you are the number one driver in the era, like a fan, you can go. Well, I'm just, oh, I'm just going to go there, um, and I'll be accepted wherever. I think it's probably a bit harsh to hold it. Alonso clearly has some issues behind the scenes. He's an extraordinary the, case, Alonso, isn't he? Is yeah. there any driver who's been considered as more disruptive in Grand Prix history, almost than Alonso? Ooh, poss- poss- possibly not. I mean, um, I mean, he's not throwing spanners across the garage and that kind of thing but you know it, it, it's become a consistent story over the past decade it has, it? but then he has also been able to to galvanize galvanize you know he, he was part of the renault you know up and coming renault team he paid a part in that going from being an occasional race winner to a championship winning operation um I think there are people at McLaren who would admit they didn't manage 2007 very well. Now, again, Fernando would have played his part in that, but it, I, I just don't think it's entirely fair to hold that that all, all against him. Um, and also, it's not like he upset Ferrari instantly. You know, he did have a couple of championships where he hauled them into position, so he probably felt that he, you know, he deserved to get his way, really. But he did leave, and then two races later, they won a race. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty unfortunate, isn't it? Well, also, I mean, the, obviously, the McLaren move doesn't look, you know, at the moment doesn't look like a genius, does it? But uh, he's he has run out of options. You could say that he's he has contributed to not having the options that he should have, given his abilities when he's on track. Well, he's still absolutely adamant he didn't make a mistake leaving Ferrari because he, as he points out, he had a contract for fifteen and sixteen, and they didn't do very much in fifteen and sixteen, and he wouldn't necessarily have been there this year anyway when it all came good so that's that's his argument when people criticize him for leaving ferrari and you know look what they're doing now but what about mclaren what about what's mclaren doing with him there well exactly it seemed like a good idea to go to mclaren didn't it but um and he was romanced by the whole honda thing and you see pictures of him in his um marlboro pedal car from when he was a kid and so on 
But again, you know, who would have thought how, uh, as well as Mercedes turned out, who would have thought that how badly Honda would turn out after after three years of it? Can I can I come back on another point on in Alonso's uh, favour? In that I'm astonished how he has, by and large, kept his motivation in a car that's been pretty uncompetitive for for three years, and then, then you contrast that to Vettel kind of getting a bit fed up last year when it wasn't the Ferrari wasn't really doing what he wanted. It was still miles better than what Fernando had, but he kind of threw in the towel, just not driving the car really the way you know he could, which is why Kimi Räikkönen suddenly looked a lot better in the second half of last year, um, and you haven't seen that really from Fernando he's still pulling out amazing qualifying laps amazing first laps holding the car up into places and I think how the great champions react when they're in a car that isn't really all that much cop is uh yeah he's a really good indicator as well yeah I think that's true it's my biggest concern with Vettel I'm a, I'm a big fan of Vettel I think he's a capable of being a brilliant driver now the way he mastered the, the exhaust blowing diffuser Red Bulls the exhaust blowing aero cars was incredible the way he adapted his style I think people still underestimate how remarkable it was what he was doing there to make sure the the gas flow out of the exhaust at various times was giving him the maximum downforce. It was it was a counterintuitive way of driving that Mark Webber, for all his skills, couldn't couldn't match in that period. But yeah, in fact, I was speaking to Vettel about this in uh, in Mexico at the weekend. Fourteen and sixteen in particular concern me in terms of that ability to keep going. And we look at Hamilton two thousand and nine in a poor car. He kept getting the best out of the car no matter how poor the McLaren was for particularly the first half of the season. But Vettel does seem to fall out of that that window. And you look at the second half of 16, when basically he and Raikkonen were near as makes no difference, evenly matched. And then look at when the car's good this year, how Raikkonen's just rarely been on the same page as, as Vettel in terms of performance. So for me, that's that's what kind of puts Vettel slightly the third best of these three, which actually disappoints me a little bit because a few years ago, I'd have said he was on, on target to potentially be the best of them. Yeah, and the, but the other thing is we don't know how, how how much has he been flattering the Ferrari this year. I know what you're saying, that when the car's good, he really shines, but that gap to Kimi that's um, been there most of the year, how, how much of that Ferrari pace has been, been Vettel, um, whether it's because he's switched on because the car is, is nearly there and he's just that little extra bit. Uh, it's hard to say, but I think he's he's done a pretty good job this year. Well, if you use Raikkonen as a baseline... Vettel's getting a huge amount out of the car, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And equally, yeah. if you use Bottas as a baseline for the Mercedes, particularly over the second half of the season, then Hamilton's also been getting a huge amount out of the car. Yeah, but if you use Kimi as a baseline, then Alonso's season alongside at Ferrari is unbelievably stellar because, <laughs> because he kicked Kimi into touch in a way that you know Vettel hasn't got near. Um, now he's his first year in the car and it was Alonso's team and all the, all the caveats that we talk about. But if you're doing a teammate comparison, you know Alonso has... Has blown Kimi away and has blown a lot of his teammates away. In fairness, you know, Stoffel Van Dorn's one of the best up and coming drivers, and he struggled to see which way Fernando's gone this year. I think the teammate comparison plays to Fernando's strengths as well. And I think last year, if we're comparing to Lewis, which is obviously how he came in, 2016, Lewis lost the championship to Rosberg, partly because of failures, but also because he couldn't get the car off the line. And Nico had worked quite hard to make it so that he could make good starts. I can't imagine Alonso leaving that stone unturned if he was in a championship fight with Rosberg. You just can't can't see it, really. A game into theory. But I think our experience of, of Alonso for the last decade and a bit, you know, the, the man that stopped Schumacher's run of championships, puts him right up there. He's, he's a top tenner for me, definitely. I guess the big question is, if you start looking at the individual characteristics, 2007 suggested that 
Hamilton was the quicker driver over a single lap in terms of extracting the maximum out of a car in a qualifying situation than Alonso does. And I'd argue that if you had to say which of those three is the best qualifier in what you might say just a given day in a normal car, you sort of feel that if you put them in for 20 races, all three of them are identical cars, Hamilton would probably come out with a better qualifying record. Everyone agree with that? Uh, Probably, yeah, but then... Will he always get the car exactly in the sweet spot? I think that's what we've seen this year a couple of times. That Bottas was ahead of him on races when it was getting a bit difficult. I think on on balance you'd put you probably would put Hamilton ahead. But we saw when he was alongside Button that didn't necessarily mean he was going to win the races. You know the number of times that Lewis would qualify ahead, sometimes a row or two ahead, and halfway through the race Button would be in his mirrors. And Button himself has said what a relentless racer Alonso is. So, yeah, Lewis on pole and Alonso to win the race. But we've also seen Hamilton, I think, in race situations, he has gradually got better over the years. Paddy Lowe, now at Williams, who was at Mercedes, he suggested that, uh, well, I can read the quote here, he said, his racecraft is probably unparalleled. It would have been great to see him race against the likes of Michael Schumacher. Michael Schumacher achieved fantastic records, but his racecraft was not one of his greatest strengths, for example. So Paddy, who's worked with Hamilton, in fact, both at Mercedes and McLaren, is saying now... Hamilton's racecraft is is unparalleled. Do we agree with that? So is this just like the the evolution of Hamilton that he's now he's always had that stellar speed, but now he's got the Sunday afternoon side of things sewn up as well? Yeah, I think so. And I think if you look at Vettel's record, it was very much apparent in the Red Bull days that he he won a lot of his races from pole position, and he, he drove brilliantly. But he it does help if you've got clean air and you're out front, and you can control the strategy and so on. And I think with Lewis, you just whether he starts second or third or fourth, you've always got that feeling that somehow he might end up winning it. Maybe you don't have that with some of the other top guys. Yeah, I think I think Hamilton and Alonso both outstanding. I mean, it's great to see them have that short dice at the end of Mexico, even though obviously it was wasn't really a, a straight fight. But they were hard, but gave each other room, which is actually what this current crop of top liners has tended to do. Um, you know, Vettel's had some good races for example, with Jensen Button. But for me, again, he's just slightly behind there. I think there was a, there were two consecutive years where Alonso and Vettel had a battle through, uh, through at Monza. When Vettel went past Alonso, Alonso pushed him wide but just gave him enough room to keep it on the islands. And when it was the other way around the following year, Vettel basically just put Alonso on the grass. And, and got it was, penalty, yeah. And it was just, it was, it was perhaps a quarter of a car's width difference. But again, how many times do you see Hamilton and Alonso create a, a, a first corner accident you know, Vettel does sometimes have a tendency on first laps to swing from the outside of the circuit to the inside, imagining that not one of the 19 other cars on the grid would have put their, put themselves there. I think Hamilton and Alonso have got a better awareness, better racecraft, but splitting the two of them on that one, I yeah, I think that they're, they're, they're both fantastic on that. Yeah, if you, you look at the, the number of first lap accidents Vettel's been involved with in the last couple of years, it's quite extraordinary really, isn't it? That someone of that calibre has just it's so accident prone. I mean, it's not always been his fault, but clearly some of them have been. You do feel that under intense pressure, when there's a lot going on, sometimes his decision making hasn't been the best. In fact, I think you'd argue Michael Schumacher was a similar thing sometimes. But again, when I interviewed Vettel in Mexico, he was very defensive of what happened at Singapore in terms of his decision at the start and how it was just a confluence of factors. But I, I'd still argue it was an error on his part because he was making assumptions about where certain cars may or may not be in terms of the way he drove and if you make assumptions too many times eventually your assumptions will be will be wrong won't they and I, I think that's where 
Vettel just just loses out because you just don't feel that he's he's going to over the course of a season minimize the mistakes in the same way that Alonso or Hamilton would. Alonso versus Hamilton on a Sunday afternoon is an interesting one though, isn't it? Because Alonso is an absolute master of of racecraft. He he sees the race going on around him. I'd argue almost like no other driver. Remember Fuji in 2008 when there was the first there was the first lap shenanigans with Hamilton forcing the Ferraris wide and it was Kubica leading with Alonso second in the runo and you had um Alonso basically over the radio almost calling the strategic shots he says right I know how to win this race this is how we do it and just that ability to do that is absolutely remarkable it's not that Hamilton's bad at that it's just that Alonso is incredibly good you were at the Indy 500 weren't you Ed I think yep. um, I didn't qualify no. sadly <laughs> um, but I, I you could perhaps confirm this I'd heard that, that his spotter had basically said he'd worked with a lot of you know a lot of top IndyCar drivers basically he'd never worked with someone with such remarkable uh, sort of understanding where all the cars were at any one time, almost like he could do the spotting himself. So, he's, and you can you can see it on first laps when uh, Kvyat hit him in Austria uh, at the start. Uh, Alonso knew it was coming. You could see him check the mirrors, and you could see what options have I got? I've just got none. <laughs> um, he just knows what's going on around him in a, in a really remarkable way. So, yeah, that's probably a fair point. I think Hamilton is. Is uh, is brilliant at it. Uh, is he as good as Alonso? That's 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 a tough one. This is why we want to see Fernando in the top car, isn't it? We want to see Alonso, Hamilton, and actually Verstappen because I think he's, you know, once he's sort of smoothed off some of the rough edges that we saw last year, um, is fantastic as well. The three of them going at it would be fantastic. Well, I think that's a championship fight we'd we'd like to see. I'd said before this season, Hamilton v Vettel was one of the ones we want to see, but it'd be great to see a mature Hamilton against Alonso, wouldn't it? Who comes out on top of that? All things being equal, Alonso v Hamilton. This is the key question now, isn't it? We've we've kind of put Vettel fractionally behind them. So who who would you back if your life depended on it? If they were in the same car again, that would be quite interesting to see, yeah. wouldn't it? That uh, it's 10 or 12 years on. Um, yeah, difficult one, difficult one, isn't it? But I think you might, as I was saying earlier, does Hamilton always get the car in the sweet spot? Possibly Alonso might just have that little advantage getting it right in qualifying and so on and just having a better race car just through working away and getting the setup right. Yeah, before this season, I'd have definitely said Alonso, but after this year, it does seem like Lewis is still improving, which is quite remarkable, really, given the level he's at now. I think it's it's very it's very difficult to call. The, and the reason I put Alonso ahead in our list of greats is because I think across the wider breadth of his his career, he's been more, more impressive more often. But in terms of their peak moments... You know, we could argue that Lewis is now getting to that, or he's at the Alonso level. So, yeah, goes down to the wire, doesn't it? That's probably where you look at it in that, in that scenario. Does Alonso have an edge in terms of ruthlessness? Possibly, yeah. Because if you, I was thinking about this the other day. When has Lewis ever done anything on track that was slightly dodgy or suspect in terms of a really dodgy blocking move or the sort of thing we used to see from Schumacher punting your championship rival off? You know. I think Lewis has got very sort of um, sort of ethic, racing ethics, I suppose, is how you describe it. Maybe one or two of the other all-time greats, including Senna, have got, just got that extra hard edge when it comes to going to the absolute limits. And perhaps we, I honestly don't remember ever seeing that from Lewis. Perhaps we, we might on the last lap of a championship decider, two guys racing for the title. But other than that, I don't remember seeing it. 
No, he had he upset Nico a couple of times and then we sort of running him out a bit wide, but nothing nothing in the in the realms that, you know, we're talking about with Senna or, or Schumacher. I think that's a very fair point. Um that Hamilton's ethics he could have just tanked into Vettel on the first lap in Mexico and that would have been game over. But actually I think it was Vettel that caused the contact. <laughs> Although I don't think that was deliberate either. I think that was just a bit ham fisted because Lewis was backing off behind Verstappen, wasn't he? But I think this this generation, this last ten years drive, the post Schumacher era actually has had Lots of hard but fair races. I think Raikkonen and wheel to wheel fight is is hard but fair. Um, that you know, I don't really remember anything from Alonso either. Yeah, that's that, true. That I'd yeah. say was that was bit that was over the line. Um, so well, it's interesting, wasn't it, with Hamilton? Because remember, there was that period. It's two thousand eight, wasn't it? Towards the end of the season, Hamilton was winding up quite a few of the other drivers. Uh, Monza, Timo Glocky annoyed, and there was quite a bit of talk about him at that point about going over the edge in terms of the wheel to wheel racing it was quite a big talking point for a, for about a week <laughs> but ever since then he's been ago. You, you know you can't you can't kind of question it how important is that way of going racing when we're talking about great drivers because it's not just a an objective thing and trying to look at stats and their performances but also is hamilton kind of the the beacon of what a racing driver should be at this stage and that he's all about doing the job on track I think no. I think off track stuff is important in terms of the team building and all that stuff that we talked about before. So I don't think it's just an on track thing. But I think ethics are and should be important. So for me, Marcus Schumacher and Hansen, and neither of them could be number one on my list of greatest F one drivers because of some of the things they did on track, where they stepped the mark. I think you can you can be a hard you can be a hard racer and not a pushover, and still stay the right side of the line. This is something that I think Rosberg did struggle with a little bit. Is that he got accused of being pushed over, and then he tried to be hard about it. And there were a couple of moves with Lewis that were really pretty, pretty terrible. Have we decided if Hamilton or Alonso is the best of this this era, or are we are we putting them very close together and and reserving judgment till they they finish their careers? I think you've got to give, as I said earlier, you've got to give Hamilton credit for the fact that he's actually done it and got all the statistics and the numbers and Alonso. For whatever reason, he's had these these poor seasons. Obviously, the last three we know have been completely out of his hands. But yeah, you've got to give credit to Hamilton for actually having the four championships. And I think on balance that and the the uh, seventy two poles and so on. And on balance, I think you'd have to give him the nod just for that. And maybe Fernando in the next two or three years with the McLaren Renault can turn things around. Even with sort of fantastic second and third places or whatever, even if he doesn't win races or championships. He may achieve enough to for us to sort of say, "Wow, you know, look what he's done with that car," especially relative to his teammate, for example. Well, I think you're as head of the podcast, Ed. You now got that you're going to have to have the deciding vote because I'm going to put you back on the spot and say I, I'd go for Alonso. So we've got one each on this side of the table. What about you? I think I have to lean towards Hamilton at the moment for similar reasons that, that Adam said, because he has managed to deliver the volume of of achievements: four world titles, seventy-two poles, sixty-two wins that Alonso hasn't managed to do and that that does say something it can't all be bad luck however there are still a few years to go in both careers so it, it could change I wouldn't say Hamilton is way way ahead but you just have to say do you know what I think that just gives you the gives you the advantage and I say that as someone who thinks I, I think Alonso is a wonderful driver and it will be so disappointing if as I fear may happen he doesn't win a third world championship I would have been delighted if he'd if he'd won the Indy 500 this year. He drove superbly. He'd have he'd have had a shot, I suspect, in the cut and thrust in the last few laps. The inexperience might have told a little bit, but I don't put anything past Fernando Alonso. So yeah, to to cut a needlessly long speech short, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna lean towards Hamilton, which excellently opens us up into the the whole next debate, which is the the wider world of 
of Grand Prix racing. We're sticking to World Championship era because it's a little bit easier to to do it that way. So apologies to Tazio Nivellari, Bernard Rosemeyer, yeah, these these great drivers. Now, just as a starting point of where Hamilton might be, back in 2009, when Hamilton was just a one-time world champion, Autosport put together a, a poll of World Championship Grand Prix starters. I think we got a total of 217 drivers to vote for their top 10s, or secret ballot. Etten Senna came out as number one. Lewis Hamilton even then came out as, as 17th. I think there was a little bit of uh, of recent bias, should we say, in, in that one. So there, there's a there's a starting point, but it puts Senna, Schumacher, Fangio, Prost as the top uh, as the top four, and obviously drivers like Jim Clark get uh, get thrown into that. Jackie Stewart was sixth. I personally would argue Jackie Stewart's the greatest Grand Prix driver currently because I just don't think he had any weaknesses. So where do we start trying to put Hamilton into this? I think he's a he's a top ten driver without question now, is he? Yeah, he has to be with four championships. I mean, there's only five guys that have got to four or more but it does get harder every every couple of years because um, we'll in a couple of years time we'll be trying to work out where does Verstappen fit in the top 10 and the, who do you throw out is the question at some point you're going to have to throw out Sterling Moss or Clark or whoever and it, it does get harder and harder doesn't it so it, it's such a tricky question it does definitely get harder doesn't it I, I my starting point on this because you have to judge the drivers within their era don't you it's, you know, it's, it's all about context yeah absolutely so if you state that as a starting point you say who are the benchmarks of any given era and i think you can quietly quite quickly rattle through fangio to moss to clark to stewart bit of a gap then i think you could make a case for louder being in there but it's not as clear then prost senna schumacher and then back to the debate that we just had so i think that gives you a sort of what's that eight eight or nine potential drivers so lewis has to be in the 10 if he's one of the two guys we're talking about now he's he's automatically into the 10 but you could also argue that Hamilton isn't. This hasn't quite been the Hamilton era, has it? Or no, has it? it no. It, I mean, well, we've we just had such a long debate about whether it was or not. So, but uh, then, how do you factor in in terms of how much opposition there is, etc.? Because these are all these are all factors falling into it. I would argue it'd be almost impossible for any driver to bestride the last dozen years in well, a way that others have in the past. It was, there wasn't a Senna era, was there? There was a Senna and Prost era. So, if you look at those two guys, and, and in his earlier days, I guess Prost was up against Lauda. Um, neither of those guys was totally dominant at the time so I don't think you can really consider that as a sort of negative yeah true yeah well you then I think you then you then go into those other factors that you're that you're talking about and it almost comes down to which criteria I think you value so some people would say the track the track ethics debate that we just had is irrelevant and you do what you need to win in which case they would probably quite happily have Senna or Schumacher at number one um, which I wouldn't because I think that's too much of a black mark. But you then look at all the other things, racecraft, wet weather driving, team building, uh, and all the rest of it. And as you say, how close the eras were. Going back to our stats, the two eras that come out as being particularly close are sort of the uh, mid, mid to late 2000s and uh, the DFV years. Um, well, in the mid to late 2000s, we just had a debate about Schumacher handing over to Alonso and who's been the best since then. But the DFE years until he retired, you know, Jackie Stewart is, despite the fact that the cars are all incredibly close, a lot of them had DFE engines, Hewland gearboxes, Ferrari occasionally got it together, occasionally didn't. Um, and yet he stands head and shoulders above that era for me. Okay, he was lucky in the sense that Jochen Rint was killed. Would he have been the centre to his Prost? Debatable point. Fittipaldi came along. Peterson was quick, but wasn't the complete driver, but he was quicker than Fittipaldi. Stewart. You know, he proved that he could win in different 
different teams, different cars, different oh, four, eras. Four different chassis, you want to? Yeah, slicks B- and BRM, wings came Matt, in. Tyrrell and uh, and March. Uh, and I, I think the 1973 title is up there with 1986 as one of the outstanding championship campaigns because if you look at the pace of the cars, the Lotus 72 was quite comfortably the quickest car of the year. And actually, I think the McLaren M23 was probably quicker than the Tyrrell as well. Bear in mind that the drivers were, no disrespect to them, you know, Denny Holm in the latter years of his career and Peter Revson, neither of whom were on the Fittipaldi, Peterson, Stewart level. Uh, and then the M23 was still good enough to win championships three years later. So I think you'd say that the Tyrrell was the third best car of that season. And he won it before he got to the season finale. Uh, quite a remarkable campaign, that one. He did have a bit of help from his teammate, though, didn't he? I mean, they, the Lotus, the points were split between the two of them. And I think there were races with Sever could have passed and Stuart knew that and maybe Jackie could have gone quicker if he knew he was racing his teammate but I think you do have to consider that a little bit I think yeah and also how good was Sever that's a big debate you know Jackie says that obviously he was going to be a world champion um, he also says that because I did speak to him about the German Grand Prix in, in 73 which is the race that kind of really stands out as them running around together and he said he was fully aware of where Francois was quick and could have gone quicker if he'd needed to and obviously you're then just basing on what the driver's saying um but in terms of the championship positions, I don't think Sever was really a threat. But Lotus certainly did split their their points across the two drives. And Ronnie Peterson in particular was very unfortunate with his with his reliability. Although one suspects he was probably quite hard on cars <laughs> the way he drove as well. Usually with someone like that, you know, Stewart's a sort of a Prost-like driver. And Prost's weakness when we're talking about this list really is wet weather driving. Well, Stewart doesn't have that either because he probably had arguably one of the great well several of the greatest wet weather drives but the one that topped our topped our piece earlier this year is the 68 German Grand Prix where he won by over four minutes in the Matra um, you know from, from Graham Hill so he doesn't have a weakness there either so I, I, I'm with you Ed we've, we've got an agreement on this <laughs> between the two of us I guess looking at it in terms of what the weaknesses are is quite a good one is there now with how Hamilton is today is there a particular weakness about him, I, I wouldn't say there's there's any area of his game you'd point to. I mean, as you said, Adam, maybe the fact that sometimes he can struggle to get the car exactly where he wants to in terms of setup is that is that the one area where we maybe say he, he loses out to some of the more rounded greats? Yeah, probably he. Maybe we're being a bit um, unfair on him, but it does appear that he, he his technical ability in that area is not quite as strong as. Um, the Senna's and the Clark's and so on. So, yeah, that's probably the, the one thing. Yeah, I think this year we have seen a more rounded Lewis with, with no real weaknesses on and off track. The fact that he's in this conversation with Senna, Schumacher, Prost, Clark, Stewart, these absolutely legendary drivers, the fact that he can hold his own among that group is is the most important thing, really, isn't it? We're not having to stretch. Like, if you take somebody like, I don't know, say Gilles Villeneuve, Many people advocate him as the greatest of all time, but a lot of other people would say, well, hang on a minute, supremely quick, some sensational wins, but there are other areas where you can really say, actually, no, he's he's kind of in the in the second rank. Whereas with Hamilton, I don't really see a, any reason to say he should not be in that debate unless you want to get into these slightly nebulous arguments, I think, about how much harder it was when you risked injury and, and death because I, I think that's part of the wider context. It's not Lewis Hamilton's job in the 21st century to have a high risk of injury or death to win a Grand Prix, whereas it was for, for Fangio or for, or for Jim Clark. It's a much more competitive era. I think in the 50s, the gaps were so big 
between both drivers and cars that if you've got someone who's a Fangio or a Moss, they most of the time didn't have to extend themselves to win races. Um, I think Fangio, after his 57 German Grand Prix win, the famous one where he caught the Ferraris, you know, he said he'd never driven like that before and never drive like it again. Well, well, you'd argue that Fangio's 57 season in the T50F was the was his standout championship, really, wasn't it? Because Yeah, that's probably that, yeah, that, that's, although that's probably fair. they did do work on the um, car, it was a bit ageing at that point, and that, that car was never as good as we almost feel like it was, shall we say, because it's an iconic car, but no, actually the 250F isn't isn't one of the greatest Grand Prix cars by any means. There are only two drivers that won World Championship Grand Prix in the 250F, and they're Moss and Fangio, and they would have would have won car one one races in pretty much any car that they got into during that era and that's kind of my point really whereas now yes they don't risk life and limb in the same way um but they're on the limit more of the time you know they have to be because the drive the gap between the best driver and grid and the worst driver is much smaller the gap between the cars generally is is smaller despite the fact that we've seen you know periods of domination um so yeah to say uh, you know there's always the the counter argument isn't there to that and they're under the spotlight so much more, aren't they? Now, with every sector of every lap is is uh, analysed and and seen, and every session. And in the good old days, it, it wasn't like that, was it? And people got away with a lot more, didn't they? I think it's probably worth talking a little bit about Ayrton Senna versus Lewis Hamilton, because Senna is in the popular culture. I guess if you took a hundred people off the street and asked them who the greatest racing driver of all time is, more of them than not would probably say Senna, wouldn't they? He's the the kind of default one. Obviously, they share stellar qualifying performances. Do we think Hamilton is at the same level as a as a Senna? Yes, but in a different way. So I think we we've this year we've had um, wet weather and qualifying debates, and Lewis and Senna have both been in them. And so far, this stage in Lewis's career, Senna has edged ahead. So the caveat is, well, if Hamilton does X, Y, Z, he might be able to get there. So you'd, you'd edge Senna ahead on that. But he has, for me, it has two weaknesses that Lewis doesn't have. One was he would occasionally throw a Grand Prix away by being too bold in traffic. 88 Monza was not Jean-Louis Lester's fault, just wasn't, in my opinion. And Brazilian Grand Prix 1990, he also lost to a needless accident in traffic. Um, I can't remember Lewis throwing away a race in traffic. Admittedly, you've got the provider, again, another caveat, blue flags now, you know, you've got to jump out of the way. So that's perhaps a little harsh. And then the track ethics thing we were talking about before. Um, third thing, which is perhaps a little bit they both share is how can they develop how good are they at developing a car you know the mclaren gradually slipped backwards after senna joined them and then he went to williams and the car came on a lot quicker after he was gone and dame was in the car no one would say that dame was quicker senna now would senna have been able to develop that car would would he have been part of that process or would he have continued carrying a, a car that was quite difficult but never getting it quite where it needed where it could get as an ultimate race car i think i think it's difficult with the 94 williams to hold that too much against senna because that that was a problem of the switch to passive suspension they couldn't get the car working in the right way. It wasn't until I think Manny Core that they had the new side pods on the car, which which made the the ninety four Williams work. I think that's more of a technical side circumstances than a, than a center side. And yeah, he only ultimately he only had the first three races, sadly, in in ninety four in order to do that. So I'd be I'd be wary of using that as a as a too much of a of a case study for Senna. The other area I think where Senna has the nod is in terms of team building and getting everybody in the team on his side. I mean, everyone that you speak to who work with him obviously talks about his his personality and the, the sheer sort of magnetism that he had. And I don't think anyone around Mercedes really feels that. I mean, they obviously respect 
Lewis and um, everything he's achieved and so on. But I, I just don't see him as a, as as a dynamic force in the same way that Senna was, and maybe maybe Schumacher to some degree at Ferrari. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why the sort of wider fandom will probably always, well, in longer term, will put Senna ahead of Hamilton because he's a more charismatic figure. He's a sort of a flawed genius, if you like, because of the things we talked about, you either sort of love him or loathe him. You know, I always try and separate the what they're like as a person to what they're like as a racing driver. But that area, Adam, obviously, is one where they kind of two cross over. Exactly, you know, if yeah. you've got yeah, enough yeah. magnetism to get the team around you, then that's a plus, isn't it? Exactly, it does. It's so important um, how the driver gets on with the team. Um, we've seen that over the years. You know, look at the the Clark Lotus relationship and Stuart Tyrrell and so on. And you can be a fantastic driver. And again, going back to Alonso, if you if you rub the people in the team up the wrong way. Um, um, it, it's going to be negative, isn't it? Perhaps a better version of my question mark on Senna then is the, is the McLaren years where they definitely lost their domination. Now, they're always going to lose it because it was so strong, but they suffered after he left as well. Um, you know, how much did they focus on trying to hold on to him in, say, 93 when he was on a race by racing and he was paid all this money rather than than, than the car getting better? You know, it's, how, how much did that play? Nobody probably knows. McLaren probably wouldn't even be able to, to answer that question. Um, but they definitely fell away. He was trying to make a point to get works forward engines, wasn't he? So he was doing what, in his opinion, was the right thing to do to improve the package. Um, in the same way that I think Alonso was criticising Honda to try and motivate them to doing something. Whether that's the right way of doing it, of course, is a more debatable point. And I guess another driver we need to really talk about is is Michael Schumacher, who's probably the other guy who's in that that default, who is the greatest of all time debate. There was some overlap, although I I tend to not count 2010 to 2012 era Michael Schumacher as quite the same driver as the proper Michael Schumacher as, as you like to keep it. You'd certainly say that Hamilton again had the had the qualifying advantage maybe over Schumacher. It was a good qualifier, got the record, but that was never an area where you said, yeah, he's the greatest of all of all time in it. But how how do we think the Hamilton v Schumacher debate stacks up? Yeah, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, again, you look at the numbers. Uh, Lewis is catching him. There was a lot of. I think Ross said something the other day that he he believes Lewis can get the records. He's he's actually getting close now to a record that it's a bit like nobody ever thought the Prost record would be broken. Uh, the fifty one wins, but now the Schumacher record. Okay, he's not within touching distance, but he's within he's within a well, few two two thirds of the way there, which says, yeah. shows you shows you Schumacher's record how incredible it is. Really, well, I've got an interesting stat here. It's sort of. Oh, the notebook is being a guy, unleashed. A guy I met in a bar in Baku, a Canadian guy called Hamilton, no relation, alerted me to this. He sent me an email with a, a graph someone had done showing the sort of wins of Schumacher and Hamilton with the seasons along the bottom and the wins upright. And the, the lines are almost um, parallel. And if you, we've had 11 seasons of Hamilton. He's on 62 wins. And Schumacher, after 11 full seasons, if you don't count the end of 91, he, he'd won 64. So they're actually really close together so basically Michael then did four more seasons with Ferrari when he was winning races so if Lewis does four more years and we're potentially going to have 21, 22, 23 races towards the end of that period he could easily get it he just needs um, you know seven, eight wins a year nine wins a year for three or four years it's not impossible is it? That's a great stat the, the notepad wins through, I think. There, <laughs> um, I, yeah. The, I think the, the strength that Schumacher's got over Hamilton is, that you, as much as we say that he's, you know, he's done well within the team. He, Schumacher really drove that team, didn't he? he? Well, he put it, he helped put it together. 
you know, moving part of Benson over to Ferrari, picking them up. I don't think you could say that Hamilton's done that uh, at Mercedes, even though superficially the story looks looks fairly similar and obviously statistically. So I think that Schumacher would have the edge there. I think Schumacher also, you talked about the era-defining drivers, I think Schumacher probably more than any other driver, I think again maybe you come back to Jackie Stewart as the other one, in terms of just raising the overall skill set level of what a Grand Prix driver needed to be. People always talk about the fitness bar that he raised that's one of them. But in terms of team building, the way he approached it, the, the rigour, I think that's an area where Schumacher definitely has to win over, over Hamilton because, you, I mean, maybe in Schumacher's era there was more room to, to build that because you, obviously you get diminishing returns as people get more and more scientific in the way they do things. Yeah, I think, I think Schumacher has to be ahead there. The, the, the counterpoint to that, obviously, is I think, as we've sort of already hinted at, Hamilton is probably operating at a more competitive period in terms of... Drivers. Certainly, yeah, and teammates, especially. I mean, yeah, and teammates. Yeah, you know, you, you can't imagine Lewis insisting on number one state. He doesn't want to get into all that. Now, whether you see that as a strength or a weakness, <laughs> you know, and I think even Prost has come out and said, "Well, actually, about Schumacher, well, that was a sensible thing to do, wasn't it? Make yourself number one. That's fifty percent of the guy. You know, one key guy out of the way. I'd have won more if I'd done that. So, but you could say, well, yeah, but it was better. I think Bernie Eccleston has come out and said, well, yeah, but the good thing about Prost is that he did let those drivers come in and just go up against them. You know, Senna coming in in 88, he went up against Lauda before that. Whether you count that as a strength or a weakness probably comes down to your, is it about the fight or is it about the end result? I think we'd probably go for the fight. We want to see the top drivers against each other. But if you're going for an objective, the task is to win as many races and championships as possible. Schumacher's method was certainly more efficient. So if Lewis can match that without without the uh, the I will be number one status in my contract, then you probably then put him. You'd start edging him ahead of Michael again. There's a bit of a heart versus head argument there, isn't it? Because obviously with the head, you say, well your job is to do everything you can to maximise your chance of winning the World Championship. And part of that is ensuring that your teammate is Johnny Dumfries or Eddie Irvin or rather than Nico Rosberg or Fernando Alonso. However, the heart says, well, this is about racing, isn't it? This is about being the best and, and beating everyone, in which case Hamilton wins. And I guess that's a that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because we're talking about most of the people listening to this are, are motor racing fans, aren't they? There's a it's a it's about the emotional attachment to it. So do you have to actually say yes? You're right, Kev. That Hamilton being willing to do that and not work so hard off tracks to maximise his chances is actually the more the more emotionally exciting way of doing it. Yeah, it's got to appeal more as a fan, hasn't it? You you like that? Well, well I'll take on all comers thing. I think that's yeah, that's probably what you'd factor in. But then you do come back to what you're making the point you're making, Ed of of has Hamilton moved on what it means to be a Grand Prix driver in the same way that Schumacher has? And I think that you'd have to say no on that score. Um, so maybe the deciding the deciding point is back to track ethics again, where Schumacher gets the same back mark as Senna and so Lewis goes ahead. Just keep going round and round in circles. I guess that's the whole, the whole objective. Let, let's try and wrap this up into something meaningful. I don't, I don't think we're going to attempt to rank the top half dozen or whatever, but it feels to me like from these discussions we've had that this does put Hamilton, not just sort of top 10, but you are talking top, sort of six seven he's in yeah. he's in that discussion isn't he yeah he has to be really doesn't he um as i said the, the, the problem comes every every three or four years you've got to kick someone out of the top 10 i mean ronnie peterson was probably in people's tops top 10s in the up until the 90s but there's no way he'd be in there now it's just no room for him is he well but, after the first world championship grand prix reg parnell was probably in the top yeah. 10 <laughs> <laughs> slightly slightly a uh, fatuous point about that but 
this says a lot because I think a few years ago we we wouldn't have been able to say with such certainty on Hamilton that he's he's up in that echelon, would we? I think there'd be too many caveats, and you'd be saying, yeah, he's certainly top top dozen, top fifteen. But that that trend is interesting, isn't it? At thirty two, you know, he hasn't got the advantages that say Senna's had twenty three years of, of legacy to be to be built of mythology to be built around him and the extra perspective you get on those drivers. Obviously Schumacher hasn't been in Formula One for, for five years now, so again that's that sort of legacy is is building. Hamilton is still here kind of in front of us with all of his flaws and his strengths and everything laid bare every other weekend pretty much. So that suggests to me that as his career goes on, provided he keeps doing what he's doing, you know, he's not going to go down in the estimation, is he? So he is on a trajectory that could could get him into a very strong contender for for the for the number one spot down the line, couldn't he? Well, I think a couple more world championships um, in the next uh, three or four years. Definitely, he's he's, he's going. He'd have to be in the top three, wouldn't he? For me, it would be how he wins those championships. I think True, what yeah. circumstances yeah. that they were in. If he has, you know, I think the exciting thing is he does seem to still be getting better. You know, this was, I think, his best campaign, um, and he's showing a he's showed a command of a race this year, which I'm not convinced that he necessarily had before. Um, yeah, I thought the backing the backing Vettel up before Eau Rouge because he realised he got around him, so that he then had yeah, it's just, it's just controlling the race. Even Abu Dhabi last year when he was controlling a race to back Rosberg up, but not weaving, not doing anything. You go well, that was a, that was out of order. Just this, that that is really impressive. I think to be able to control I, a race. I thought like that, that drive by Hamilton was great. Some people criticised it, but I thought what Hamilton was doing there was absolutely brilliant. And the fact that, as you say, he did it. In a legitimate way, spoke volumes about about his quality, and I think that's that's something we haven't yet mentioned. So you're you're right to bring that one up. Yeah, before beforehand, I was hoping he wouldn't. I was hoping he would just go off into the distance and make a point that way, um, because obviously I'm I, I, I'm sounding very ethically puritanical uh, in this podcast, and so I was hoping he'd clear off. But actually, I thought the way he did it was 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 pretty acceptable, really, and, and fair play to Nico Rosberg for withstanding that immense pressure as well. But if if Hamilton, if this is a one sort of one off year where he didn't next year, Bottas maybe gets close to him and he cracks a couple of times, or you know we see some of the weaknesses we've seen before, then you say, well, that was a, that was a peak. If he continues the as you say the current trajectory and he wins a title or two against a Verstappen in a competitive car or Vettel again or, or even a teammate who knows who he's going to have in 2019 and onwards then you think well he, it's harder and harder to keep him out of that top you know five three bracket yeah as I was saying earlier about this season the, the fact that there have been no mistakes at all apart from that um, one pit lane going too slowly penalty and um, that, that thing he mentioned the other day about um I've been working so hard on reliability. It'd be very interesting to talk to someone at Mercedes, Andy Cowell or whoever, find out, you know, have there really been races where he was, he turned everything down and was still doing the times and because he was thinking two or three races ahead, I don't want another engine penalty because he was hit so hard by reliability last year. And looking ahead to the future, there was a fantastic um, little cameo in uh, Mexico. I was watching TV in one of the motorhomes and, and Lewis was interviewed by Damon and Martin Brundle. And they showed him the the replay of that first lap from his onboard camera, and he just got so excited. He said, "Oh, that's so cool! This is what I, this is the kind of racing I've been waiting for for years." And you could just see the sort of twinkle in his eye that that yeah, it's not just Vettel. There's Verstappen as well. There's three teams, and going into next year, this is going to be fun. And that that was really interesting just to see that that he's 
he obviously had enough of just racing his teammate and all that, that stress involved in the team trying to balance the strategies between the two of them. And this year, he's been clearly been excited by taking on Vettel and having Red Bull in the mix as well. He's obviously looking forward to that. Yeah, I mean, I think you guys would probably know better, but you certainly got the impression from afar through fourteen sixteen that his enthusiasm for F1 was sort of perhaps waning a bit. Um, but this year, with the faster cars and, as you say, unshackled from the politics of Mercedes, he's got he clearly already fancying a fight with Verstappen. He's come out and talked about it. Vettel is the four-time world champion. Yeah, we'll match him. He, the, the fire's back, so now maybe he will be around for another five, six, seven years, in which case the records do look distinctly under threat, don't they? Yeah, and he said another interesting thing at the weekend along the lines of um, that racing is my priority and I anything outside it, uh, as I've got a balancing so it doesn't affect my racing. And he keeps hinting at this strange thing about I've got my bucket list and there are things I'm going to do next year that you don't know about and I've had meetings and this and that. And we're all trying to work out what he's on about, but clearly he's got other things going on in his life that sort of keep him motivated on the racing side because he knows he can go away and 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 do other stuff and come back refreshed which maybe other top drivers don't do because they're so focused on what they're doing and they might have a family life at home but they don't really have anything else outside that and the fact that he does all this these other things and all the showbiz stuff that people um don't necessarily approve of um if it if it works for him, then that's fine, isn't it? It's it's deeply tiresome when people try and hold some of the off track stuff against him when it's you know all he's doing is just doing what he wants to do in his in his spare time. And, and exactly, these are the same people that say, "Well, Graham Hill used to dance on the tables in the bar in Monaco and so on." And Lewis goes off and is seen at a fashion show, just on the red carpet, having his picture taken, and they go, "Oh no, he's being distracted from his." Day job. Which is nonsense. Yeah. You, you can't well, win, can you? <laughs> if, if he'd um, if he'd then turned up and done a you know been half a second lap slower than his teammate, then you'd say yeah maybe stop going to these things. But if that's actually as you say, I wonder if he's learned this from Jensen. You know, obviously that year where he had a terrible time and button, you know, was in this happy place. I wonder if he saw that and thought I need to I need to be in a place where I'm coming out of my everyday life into the into the race weekends on and up. And maybe that's maybe that's coming. I think he's probably had more freedom at Mercedes, doesn't he? To to, to do what he likes so if he's if that's what he needs to deliver on track yeah who, who cares really well, the intensity the intensity of delivering in top level sport is mind-blowing i mean on the one hand people always say oh but it's not the same as if you're struggling to put food on the table of course it isn't but the unique pressures of trying to perform at your peak are very very difficult to to live with to adapt to particularly over a long period of time and i think as adam said what what lewis has managed to do is get the balance right where he can break away in a way that doesn't detract from what he's doing the rest of the time because it's just as bad to be overly involved and intense about it as it is to spend not enough time on it because you you just end up burning yourself out doing that and also I think it is a lot easier to take time off now I mean there are more races than there were years ago but not that many I mean we've got 20 this year and they had 17 in 1977 but because there's so little testing they can take time off. They can disappear for eight, nine, ten days. And especially Lewis, we know he's not a big fan of the sim, doesn't really believe in it. So he's not expected to be in the in Brackley between every race doing, you know, two or three days on the next circuit. So the fact that they can escape and that he can talk to the team um, online, obviously, if he has to have a And a he, he does do that. You hear stories of they'll just sort of out of the blue get something from him that he's been thinking about. So it's not like he's not doing his job out of the car when he's away it's still there in, his, in the back of his mind yeah exactly he's, he, he doesn't have to be in the factory 
every, every other week. Um, well, I it's think not he, a job's designed the car. Exactly. Is it? Yeah, he's there quite a lot. But said so, so especially with the sim business, the fact that he he doesn't see that as something he needs to spend much effort on um, means he can be the other side of the world. And as you said, if he thinks of something or if the team has something to say, they can have a little meeting on Skype or whatever, and, and that's good enough, isn't it? So I guess we're coming to the point where we need to to summarise things a little bit. Are we all agreed Hamilton is basically in that top half dozen debate without scrawling our own our own lists together? I think so. If you look at the numbers and and the way he's done it, and especially this year, he's been pretty faultless, hasn't he? And he's he's beaten a very very strong rival. And obviously, there's so much more to come potentially. I mean, he he keeps saying, oh, "I'll do a couple more years." I mean, that could mean anything. That could mean two, three, or four. Maybe at the end of next year, when he's won five, he'll he'll do a Nico and just just say, right, that's it. But that's the interesting thing is that he is a bit unpredictable. Kevin Turner, yeah, no, he's got to be in the debate, isn't he? We've just had one. He's he's definitely in it. Um, I'm sure some people will be shocked in the pool to suggest that we could even put him up there with with Senna and Schumacher. But you know, you, I think you have to. I think you absolutely have to look at what he's achieved. And in fairness, the way he's done it now as well. Um, He's got to be. He's got to be right in the mix, and um, it you could could be even higher given another two or three years' time. We just don't know. And you have to consider the fact that that Nicky Lauder keeps telling us how good Hamilton is. I mean, I don't know if we've actually anyone's actually asked asked him is he where would you put him in the top top uh, guys of all time? But he's absolutely adamant that that Lewis is the best of the the current era, and by by some margin, I think in in considering all all the areas. Well, that says a lot, doesn't it? Nicky Lauder, a three-time world champion, who's raced against many of many of these greats. And yeah, I, I have to agree with him being in this debate. It's a little bit boring for me not to dissent, but I'm actually slightly surprised in talking through this, how easy it is to to elevate him comfortably ahead of what is a pretty remarkable, what you might call, second group of, of drivers. And actually, he, he's almost blowing them out of the water in terms of his achievements. That's not to dis- be disrespectful to those drivers because there's there've been some incredible drivers and incredible performances. But what Hamilton's done over such a long period of time just elevates him into that into that elite group. And we're, I think we're excited about where it could go. You know, the, the, for me, an example is the, the the wet weather thing that we did. He hasn't lost a war rain affected Grand Prix since I think about 2014. Uh, and that's that's pretty remarkable. He's, that's the n- greater number of wet weather race wins he's put together than than even Senna managed. Now Senna's probably got more uh, sort of big headline wet weather wins to his credit, so he, you'd probably still have him ahead. But you know, another two three years of still nailing all the wet weather wins. I suspect Max Verstappen will stop that happening, but um, but that that could elevate him yet further. And that's that's the point really. We're at, we're at the stage now where he's in the debate. How high can he go? Well, that's something we're going to find out over the next few years. So thank you very much, Kevin Turner and Adam Cooper, for offering your expertise to this debate. I'm sure everyone listening will have some strong opinions on what we have said and maybe what we haven't said as well. So obviously, at Autosport on Twitter, you can go to our Facebook page, Autosport, or even send us an email. What's what's our correspondence email address for the magazine, Kevin? Autosport.com, I think. There we go. Simple enough. So if you have any thoughts on, on what we've said, please please get in touch. We've got the Brazilian Grand Prix coming up this weekend. That's the next chance for Lewis Hamilton to uh, to expand his his records further, and there's a good chance there may be some uh, some of the wet weather you talked about, uh, Kevin. So you can follow that on Autosport.com. All the latest news and reaction and in depth features in our plus subscriber area. You'll be able to read some of Adam Cooper's words from from out in Brazil. 
And also remember to pick up Autosport Print Magazine out every Thursday. This current issue is the Lewis Hamilton World Champion celebration with all our Mexican Grand Prix coverage. And also check out sister titles, F1 Racing and Motorsport News. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The Just Because deal. Hey, oh, what's this? Breakfast from Mickey D's. From me? Yep. Why? Because it's morning and you like McDonald's. Let's eat while it's hot. There's a deal for every act of kindness at McDonald's. You don't need a reason when the one and only hot and melty sausage McMuffin with egg is just two fifty. dollars Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.